Take your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through 23. And as you're turning there, I want to start by asking you a question. Maybe I'll I'll kind of backtrack a little bit. Uh, Back in Romans 5, we weren't uh, in this room. You were somewhere, I hope, uh, watching uh, the message online and listening. And I began with a question then. I, I asked uh, this question, and I, I, I guarantee that you should get at least 50% on this quiz, so let me just remind you, right, I, um, who are the two most important people in all of history? And the answer to that should be clear. What's, give me one. Give me one of those. Somebody just, what's the clear answer? Jesus. Kids, do you remember the second answer? Adam, right. Adam and Jesus are the two most important uh, figures in all of history. That's how we can divide all of humanity. And I want to ask you a second question, and this one, it should elicit a hundred percent accuracy, okay? Here it is. Um, If we are Christians, should we continue to sin? What is it? Come on, help me out. Louder. Should we continue to sin? No. Very good. Very good. This is the exact question that Paul is asking, or someone is asking Paul, hypothetically, at the beginning of this chapter. But here's the question I want to follow this up with. If the answer to that question is no, here, listen, listen, why? Why? Why should we not continue to sin? That's the question that Paul is actually going to answer for us today. It is the reason why the answer is no. And this reason, the rationale he gives us, is critically important in fighting sin in our lives. When we know the why of that no, that resounding no, we figure out how to fight this battle against sin well. When Paul asked the question the first time, back in verse 1, you'll notice that there is a similar question there. Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound, right? If we continue to sin, grace is going to increase, so why not continue to sin? He comes alongside us now and asks us a slightly different version of that question. But the previous answer was the same, no. No, we can't sin. We can't continue to sin. We're united to Christ. We're linked to Him. We have newness of life, right? We died in Christ. We were raised in Christ. We can't then go on living habitually in sin. Notice that I I didn't say we, we can't still sin. We do. We sin daily, and we need God's grace and God's help daily, But if we're in Christ, the answer is that we no longer have this reality. We can no longer continue to live habitually in patterns of sin in our lives. And so he tells us again that we we can't continue to live in sin, but the reason is slightly different, and it is related to our new reality as Christians. Here's the reason he ultimately gives us. It's because we're slaves to righteousness. Here's what he says beginning in verse 15. Let's look at it. He says, what then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you, get, were you getting at the t- that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul here drives this new reality home into our hearts. Again, we can't continue in sin because of who we now are. We're slaves of righteousness. That's what Christians are. We are a particular kind of slave. And if we understand this reality, we will see uh, increasing victory over sin in our lives, and as a byproduct of that, increasing joy in the Lord. He uses this metaphor of slavery to teach us this reality of who we are and how we are to live. And the first thing we need to recognize from this text is this. What he calls us to do is realize your status as slaves. That's the first thing he wants you to know. Look again. He asks this question in verse 15, and then he answers in verse 16 with this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? He separates all of humanity into two categories, but notice this. Everybody is in the category of slave. The question is, what are you a slave to? Now, to really kind of grasp this, we actually need to back up and and fully understand the question that he's asking and the nuanced difference from the first time he asked back in verse 1. Here he tells us that we should no longer continue to sin because we're not under law, but instead we're under grace. Now, here he's, he's in one sense speaking of the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, that which was given to the Jews, the, the written down uh, Old Testament scriptures. And to be under the law is to essentially submit yourself, as we saw last week, to its requirements and to its consequences. But Paul has already established that even if you don't have the Old Testament, even if you don't have that written law, the Ten Commandments, that you are still accountable to the law of God. If you're not a Christian, you are actually under law. You are under this category. That's your status, and that's also what it means to be in Adam. You are under law. You're under the demands of the law. You're under the consequences of the law. This relentless pursuit of trying to fix yourself and make yourself right before God, this is where you live. All people are either under law or under grace. And and broadly speaking, to be under law is to have everything God commands, to obey, excuse me, everything God commands, or you will die. This is what it means to be under law. 
Obey everything God commands perfectly or else you're going to die. And in order to live, you must keep the commands of God perfectly. It's a devastating reality to find yourself in. Remember that Paul has told us that even the Gentiles who were not given the Ten Commandments on on a tablet of stone, they were given enough of the law in both creation, remember that in chapter 1, and on their conscience that they could actually be considered under the law. In fact, just flip back to chapter 1 for a brief moment. In verse 32, he talks uh, first about the, the sins of, of those above, of, of the, the Gentile world, murder, strife, unrighteousness, all kinds of covetousness and malice, inventors of evil. And then he says this, look at verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Even though they never had the Bible, Even though they never had direct revelation from God, a spoken word from God, they knew the law of God. It was seared into their conscience. All people everywhere have enough of what God expects written on their conscience that they know that those who disobey Him deserve to die. They're under law. Romans 3.19 actually helps us process this as well. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that, listen to this, so that every mouth may be stopped. Listen to this, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Do you see that? The whole world is under the law of God and will one day stand before him and give an account for how they disobeyed and rebelled against that very law, seared on their conscience. Jews and Gentiles, every mouth stopped. There's a sense then in which the whole world is is under law, but the law for the unbeliever, listen, it can't save. We know this. You can't obey the law perfectly. You can't fulfill its every demand. You can't make yourself right with God. In fact, we, we know this, that the law not only does not present a pathway to salvation, it actually heaps upon us greater condemnation, right? The more you actually know of the law, the, the more guilty you become. And, and not only that, the law itself actually incites our hearts towards more sin, right? You, you don't believe me? You want, you want proof of this principle? Go home, take your kid's favorite snack or candy, Put it on a table that they can reach it, sit them in front of it, and tell them that they're not allowed to have any, and then walk away. Just peek around the corner. See how long they last. We know this, right? There's something about the forbidden fruit that actually is enticing to us. The law shows that you are actually a slave to sin. And the law promises condemnation, but Paul says that we're not under law anymore as Christians. We're under grace. That that means, remember, that we have been declared righteous by God. He has paid the penalty for our sin. His death was a death in our place. He rose victorious from the grave, and we now walk in newness of life. We have been clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is our shield forever and ever against the eternal wrath of God. He took it all for us so that we can now stand, never condemned, never cast off, eternally, listen, saved, 
saved and able to enter into the very presence of God. Amen. We stand in grace, what Paul has said. We stand, that is our standing, our permanent standing in Christ, never to be lost, no more condemnation. How is this related to what we're dealing with? Well, Paul wants us to understand that if we stand in grace, we can't sin, but you may be inclined to then ask, if we really stand in grace, why not sin, right? If there's no consequences, if there's no condemnation, if nothing's ever going to happen to me, why why don't I just sin my brains out for the next 50 years, and then I just walk straight into glory, and who cares, right? Wrong. And if you think like that, listen, the reality is you're probably not saved at all. He says, the reason you can't do that is because of what God has done for you in the gospel. You've been made a slave to righteousness from the heart. And so he wants us to realize our status as slaves, not that that some people are slaves, but that everyone in this world is a slave. And so he unfolds this principle of slavery. And by the way, this was something that was incredibly relevant to the people in Rome. At this time, when Paul was writing in the first century, it's estimated that one-third of the population is actually slaves. That means that one-third of the church is likely slaves, maybe even more. So you're like, why is he using this analogy? One, because it's incredibly relevant to the people who are hearing this. They understand what it means to be a slave. They're looking at it. It's part of their culture. It's all around them. It actually may be the status of their life at that very moment. This isn't some kind of a haphazard or trivial uh, analogy or metaphor he uses. This is incredibly relevant for their lives. And the principle that he draws out for us is simply this. You are a slave to whatever it is you obey. What you do shows who's got you. How you behave shows what controls you. Your actions reveal your master. You are, all people are, a slave to what they offer themselves to. And by the way, this is the exact principle that the world communicates to us. The world says, I walk to the beat of my own drum. I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm not bound by social conventions or traditional morality. I'm true to myself. The Bible says you are deeply confused. You're not free at all. In fact, remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8? I'll put it on the, the screen here. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Everyone. You're like, well, that makes sense, right? It makes sense in some categories. Like, that makes sense for like the drug addict or maybe the chronic gambler or maybe the drunkard, right? You, you can look at that. You're like, these things got you, right? They, they are controlling you. They have a grip on your life. And you'd be right. That's absolutely true. But everyone is a slave. Maybe, maybe it looks a little bit different. Maybe even today you're sitting here and, and this is what you should be evaluating. What am I a slave to? Maybe it's your job. Some people are, are enslaved to their work. They eat, sleep, and drink work. They're workaholics. It controls every part of their, their waking hours and even their dreams. 
It takes their time, their energy, and their attention. Maybe you're, you're enslaved to the gym. You're obsessed with body image. You're controlled by physical health or external looks. Maybe you're enslaved to your phone, right? The moment you wake up, you grab your phone and you put it on as if it's some kind of a prosthetic limb attached to your body. And you have a hard time even taking it off at night. Emails, social media, whatever it is, Some people are enslaved to possessions, dreaming about what they don't have or how they can acquire more. The point is simple. Listen, we obey that which enslaves us. This is a spiritual principle. And when Jesus said, by the way, again, in eight, chapter 834, that you're a slave to, to whatever you know, sins you, you think about this. He's speaking to religious Pharisees. Religious people who were addicted to establishing their own righteousness before God. Religious people who, who looked on the outside like they were pretty good. And then Jesus comes along and says, you're a slave to sin. You don't even see it. The truth is that some slaves to sin wind up face down in a puddle in a ditch, but others look pretty good on the outside. But they're both equally slaves to sin. Anyone who doesn't embrace Jesus Christ isn't just flirting with sin. They are deeply enslaved to it. And everyone who embraces Jesus Christ is a slave of righteousness. So the first thing you need to do in understanding your battle against sin is to realize your status as a slave. And ask this question, even this morning, do some heart kind of examination, a little bit of introspection in this moment. What does my life reveal about the reality of my slavery? If somebody was to take a, 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 a kind of a, a microscope and look into my life or a, a, a magnifying glass and put it on my life, what would they say is the slave of my life? What is ruling my life? What kind of attitudes or affections and actions are controlling my life? If you're in Christ, what you should see is a pattern, not, not perfection. Listen, not perfection. You are going to see sin. You are going to see even some things that, that do have some kind of a hold on your life. You're going to see things that you slip back into from time to time. But what you should see is an increasing kind of growth pattern of bowing the knee to Jesus in every area of your life. That's what you should see. And in fact, what Paul hopes will secondly do in this battle against sin is this, recall your surrender to your Savior. Recall your surrender to your Savior. Verse 17, he begins kind of with this little aside. You'll notice he, he's speaking directly to believers here because of what he says. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed I love this. He is applying now the principle, okay? This is what he's doing. He's taking this principle. Everybody's a slave, and you should be a slave to righteousness. That's, that's who you are if you're in Christ. But he gets so personal and so pastoral here, he speaks directly to believers about their own experience with Jesus. And he thanks God for it. 
And it's not, listen, it's not choose this day whom you will serve. It's actually way, way better than that. It's thanks be to God, you are now slaves to righteousness. This is who you are, Christian. This is your reality. It's not what you should be. It's who you actually are if you're in Christ. This is an incredible definition, really, this section, 17 through 19, of of what it means to be a Christian. What's happened to you if you are a Christian? Someone who has been radically changed, converted. And I just want to walk through this in three kind of simple steps with you, but here's what we see. True surrender to Jesus requires gospel truth. This is an obvious one, and especially if you're a Christian. But if you're not, then, then this might be really helpful for you. You're like, how do, I, how do I become a slave to righteousness? It, it requires a surrender to gospel truth. And that's what verse 17 is all about. You were once slaves to sin, but look what happened. You became obedient from the heart. Notice what it says, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, this, by the way, is not about something you committed to. This is actually in a passive verb, a passive sense, something that, was, that you excuse me, were committed to, something that you were handed to. You are now in the care of something else, and that something else here is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love this. He kind of walks, isn't this like, this is what we heard in baptism this morning, right? That, 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 that these two men explain, this is what we're here in the next service. And this is what everybody who stands up and, and gives a testimony of what God said. This is who I was. I was lost. I was dead. I lived for the world. I desired sin, but I was bankrupt and empty and hopeless. I was a slave to sin. That's what people are saying in their testimony. Sin had me. And then what they're declaring is this, and then God got me. The gospel got a hold of me. Somebody preached the gospel to my heart, and in an instant, my eyes were opened, and I believed the gospel. But you see, this is a standard of teaching here. The gospel is filled with doctrinal truths that must be understood and believed. You must believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. You must believe that he came in bodily form. You must believe that he lived the perfect life that you could never live, that he himself satisfied the demands of the law. You must believe that he willingly walked to a cross and gave his life where he paid the full penalty for sin, suffering the wrath of God. You must believe that Jesus Christ physically, bodily rose from the grave victorious over sin and is exalted to the right hand of the Father. You cannot be saved unless you grab hold of those truths. Better yet, listen, unless those truths grab hold of you. This is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It does not change. It is the truth that always saves. This is what you must believe, this gospel truth. But it doesn't just engage your mind. Did you notice that? You're obedient from the heart. You confess with your mouth, but you believe in your heart. You become convinced and convicted of sin. You realize the reality that you are hopeless without Jesus Christ. You realize that you will go to hell and and pay for your sins, eternal wrath and suffering, but by the grace of God. You see, what Paul is saying is this, you must come humbly to the cross. Justification by faith alone. 
And this will radically change your life. This is who I was. This is what I believed. This is what God has done. This is a testimony. And by the way, all of this, this is so important to understand, all of this is something that you did not do to yourself, okay? The verbs in this passage are passive verbs. It's as if Paul is screaming, remember, remember what God did, which is why he begins with the very words on the, look at the page, look at the page, verse 17. Look at what he says. Thanks be to who? Come on, church, come on. Thanks be to God, right? He doesn't say thanks be to you who figured it out. So grateful that you are smart enough and you are good enough and, and, and capable enough. He says, thanks be to God, because he realizes, listen, that if God doesn't intervene, if there isn't a miracle of salvation that happens in your life, you're hopeless, and so am I. Thanks be to God, he says. This doesn't remove human responsibility, but it for sure puts the priority on God's sovereignty. This action of becoming committed in your mind and your heart moves into your will, but you'll notice it, it affects something. See, gospel truth moves to this. Secondly, gospel transfer. Look at verse 18. Again, this is what we've been talking about. And having been, look at it, passive, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. There, there has been, because of this gospel truth, and because how God, listen, has produced faith in your heart, and you believed in the truth, there has become an actual gospel transfer that's taken place. Paul talks about this in Colossians. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And, and this kind of idea is all throughout the scripture. You've been transferred from being in Adam to in Christ, in darkness to in light. This is a, a transfer of position before God, of status before God. You were once enemies and now you are friends. You were once strangers and now you are children of God. It's kind of like you, you've escaped living in North Korea and you've found North America. Or you've been freed from a, a maximum security prison and now you live in Buckingham Palace. We were under law and now we are under grace. We were a slave to sin and now we are a slave to righteousness. This is who we have become. And under this new slavery, here's the point that he's making, we can no longer enjoy sin like we used to. This is why disobedient Christians are always miserable. Because they're, they're trapped in this rut of sin, but they can't enjoy their sin, right? They're frustrated by their sin. They can't find joy because joy comes from obedience to the Lord. That's where true joy is found in the Christian life. It's in knowing the Lord and following the Lord and walking closely in intimacy with him. But disobedient Christians, listen, they, they go after sin, but they really can't enjoy it. Here's why. Because they're now swimming upstream. They're going against their new nature that God has given them. This is simply a fulfillment of the new covenant promises that are given in, in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, where, where we're told that God is going to write the law on his people's hearts, that they will want to do the right things from the heart. 
Ezekiel 36, that this new heart and new spirit will remove, he says, the heart of stone from your flesh and put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and listen and be careful to obey my rules. This is what the new heart longs for. This is what that transfer has done. And lastly, the gospel truth and gospel transfer always leads to gospel transformation. Gospel transformation. And this, again, is where he's leaning into us. Look at verse 19 now. He comes to us with this appeal and this exhortation. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, spiritual growth, increasing holiness. That's what sanctification is. You say, what does he mean at the beginning there? Like, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Some people think that Paul's making some kind of an apology for the, the metaphor of slavery. In, in, in other words, they, they think he's saying, look, I understand this metaphor isn't perfect. It's not, it's not a completely adequate metaphor. Every, every metaphor or analogy breaks down at some point. Some people think that's what he's saying because he's wanting to communicate, look, I understand that slavery is an, is an interesting metaphor because slavery to God is not really like slavery to sin. Sin. Slavery to sin sucks. Slavery to God is awesome. But I, I think there's more to it than that. I don't really think that's what he's, he's, he's ultimately getting at. Lots of people believe that. Lots of people believe that what he's doing is he's simply acknowledging that the human frailty and weakness of the flesh. In other words, he's pointing to the reality. Listen, I'm telling you these things. I'm reminding you of these things. I'm having to give you this, this analogy, and I'm, I'm having to push into you like this over and over again because I know your natural limitations. I know human weakness. Even with the Spirit of God, I know how hard the battle of sin is. I know, I know that it's hard, and so I'm just trying to lean into you and say, listen, it's not easy. It's not, it doesn't just kind of come automatically. You don't become this super godly, mature follower of Jesus Christ overnight. That's not the way sanctification works. I think that's what he's getting at. And look at how he unfolds this for us. He knows we can easily turn back and serve another master, so he calls us to fight this battle and this war with a kind of passion and energy and exertion that actually paralleled our former life. Do you get that? You see what he says? He says, look, remember who you were. Do you remember that you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more law? Remember when you just went after sin like a hamster caught in a wheel? right? You just, you just kept going and going and going, and sin ruled your life, and you pursued it with this zeal and passion. Look at what he says. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. In other words, you know how you had that same zeal for sin in your past life? Have that zeal but greater in your pursuit of godliness. Remember how you ran after sin relentlessly in your past life? Run furiously after holiness in your new life. Be relentless with it like a, a dog on a bone. Go after it with all of your zeal and passion and energy. Present your body as slaves to righteousness. Understanding that instead of leading, you know, like your past life sin to more sin, listen, when you pursue righteousness with zeal, here's the awesome thing. It leads to more righteousness and more righteousness. You just keep growing and growing in righteousness and holiness. 
Take all those new energies infused with the power of the Holy Spirit and live for your Savior. And the reason he's talking about our natural, again, limitations, our human weakness, is because this this is an appeal that's not simply a one-off. It's an appeal that needs to be heard over and over and over again in our lives. If you're anything like me and you struggle with sin every single day of your life, you need to be reminded of this truth every single day. I need it preached into my heart. I need to hear, Ian, today, today, run after sin. Be zealous, or sorry, not after sin. Don't, don't, don't quote me on that. Run after sanctification, right? Flee from sin. Pursue Christ today. Go harder. Go harder after Jesus today. I need that because, listen, sin still remains. The presence of sin is still very real. And if I just kind of leave myself to that, and I think I'm going to float around here in no man's land and be neutral in the battle against sin, guess what happens? The same thing happens to me as happens to you, okay? You don't stay in neutrality. You drift back into sinful behaviors and practices. This happens. This is just the way it works. And so this this need to be relentless every single day. This call to total commitment to Christ each and every day. Today I must surrender to my Savior. Tomorrow I must surrender to my Savior. And every day after, until I die or until he returns to take me home. Every day, total commitment, surrender to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if we do that, This is an invitation. Listen, here's this final point. This is an invitation to receive your satisfaction in sanctification, okay? It's so hard, okay? Running after God and and Jesus, it's so hard, but it's so good. And you have to believe this. It's so much better. It's so much more life-giving. It is so much more satisfying. And he simply presses it deeper into our hearts in these final few verses. And he wants to help us do this. I love that. Paul's so pastoral, and he's wanting to help move us into this place of godliness. And he, he says this, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, righteousness was not your master. You couldn't actually obey righteousness. You were free. You didn't have to listen to righteousness. In fact, you couldn't listen to righteousness. But then look at what he says. But what fruit were you getting? I love that word fruit. You'll notice it's going to come up here a couple of times. I mean, what benefit? What benefit were you getting? What fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now, listen to this word, ashamed? For the end of those things is death. It's death. What helps you pursue holiness in your life? It's knowing how destructive sin is. That's one thing that God has given us. How destructive sin is to understand the fruit of sin, and that is this, shame and death. Did you notice the Christian attitude towards their past life here? This is so important to understand. They're ashamed of it. They're ashamed of it. What, what good did it actually provide in your life, right? When you think back to your life before Christ and you remember your life of sin, or just even if you're a Christian, just think back to the last time you decided to pursue, pursue sin. How fruitful was that? How good did that taste in the end? It's like, it, it's like eating a Big Mac, right? It tastes real good. And then instant shame. 
I hope nobody saw that. It's been a while. I haven't used the Big Mac analogy, sorry. It looks so good, right, sin? But, but the moment we've eaten our fill, we feel gross, we feel guilty, we feel ashamed. Paul is wanting to remind us what it felt like and what it feels like to bow the knee to sin as master. And I just, I want to encourage you with this. Listen, I, I need you to hear this. Shame is a grace of God. I'm going to say that again so you don't misunderstand me. Shame is a grace of God. You say, what do you mean? It is a grace of God to be ashamed of what God hates, of what will destroy your life, of what will give you no lasting satisfaction or joy. It's a, it's a grace. Now, as Christians, we want to jump over shame and quickly get to grace. And I understand that. But I think what Paul is doing here, listen, is so important if you want to keep winning the battle with sin. Listen, he's wanting to encourage us, and I want to encourage us to linger here for a moment, not for long, but linger for a moment in the shame and regret of sin. Remember what it felt like, right? Isn't that, so, isn't that, isn't that why we often just run back into sin? We're, we don't think about what it felt like the last time. We don't remember what it was like when we, we said we'd never do this again. Remember that? It's a grace to linger there, to feel the weight of it, to feel the burden of it, to remember that it was our sin that held Christ there on the cross. It was our sin that, that required God to put his own beloved son to death on our behalf. We need to linger there for a moment because if we fail to remember the shame we felt, we will quickly return to our sin like a dog returns to his vomit. Now, everyone... Listen, this is so good, so important. I just want, I need you to hear this too. Everyone who has all kinds of things to be shamed of are welcome in this place, okay? Amen? I don't care what sin you've struggled with or are struggling with now. I don't care how great your sin was. You are welcome in this place because the gospel of God's grace welcomes each and every sinner. None are turned away by the grace of God. You're gonna meet in this place this morning, if you're new here, just this is maybe helpful for you when you're shaking hands one day, when you're allowed to do that again. You're going to meet former adulterers. You're going to meet former liars and former thieves and cheats. You're going to meet people who struggle with all kinds of sin in this place. But that's what the grace of God does. It invites all sinners to come. And here's what you're going to find out if you're truly saved and you're in this place for long. We don't glory in those things any longer. Amen? They are the things which we are now ashamed, the things we hate, for they are the things that drove Christ to the cross. And now we can't linger for long there. We can't live in shame. We do need to linger for a moment, but we do need to move into grace. The recognition of shame and regret makes grace, listen, so much sweeter to our souls. Not only do I not want to feel that anymore, I don't have to. That's what the gospel says. 
Jesus has set me free from the power of sin. Listen to what he says. You become slaves of God now. You've been set free, verse 22. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But look at this. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no true and lasting satisfaction in lawlessness. There is only increasing guilt and shame that leads ultimately to everlasting death, for the wages of sin is death. And when you're so sick of your sin and so broken over its influence and power in your life, and when you see your absolute inability to fix your problem or make yourself better or quiet your conscience, you are ready to receive satisfaction that comes only in the saving grace of God and the continual sanctification of your life. We must learn to receive our satisfaction in our sanctification. Sanctification, loved ones, listen, pursuing godliness is not a chore. It is intimacy. In the Bible, there are grades of holiness, and you can grow in holiness. Paul says this, from one degree of glory to the next. And here's what that means for, for us, so that in one sense, you can be closer to God in intimacy, not in standing, not in position, not in status. That is secure and set. You're a child of God. Your union is established, but you can grow closer to God in intimacy and fellowship with him, in nearness to him, and experiencing the joy of what it means to be close to God. Oh, how this should be the longing of our soul We're invited to live in deeper, richer, more meaningful intimacy with God. We're being offered something so much better than what sin promises. So much more satisfying. We're offered the very presence of God, what our hearts were made for. And its end, did you notice that, is eternal life. Not something you've achieved. The wages of sin is earned. The wages of sin is death. That's what you merit. But the free gift of God, it's something you cannot achieve. It's something that you must receive as a gift that is given. We are convicted of our sins as a gift. Listen, loved ones, we came to faith as a gift. Thank, thanks be to God. We are justified by the gift of his grace. We press on in sanctification as a gift of his grace. We are made slaves to righteousness as a gift of his grace. And grace upon grace, listen, one day we will be rewarded with the gift of eternal life with Christ Jesus our Lord. It is good to be a slave of Jesus Christ. It's a gift. Give yourself to it. Don't give yourself to sin. Don't give yourself to some kind of cheap grace which tells you you don't have to pursue righteousness in this life. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about about this cheap grace, this idea that you can have grace and continue to sin. He says, cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. And let me just tell you, loved ones, that cheap grace is not grace at all. That is death. 
But true grace, he says, biblical grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is a slavery that is better than any freedom this world has to offer. You can go to the bank with that. Father, we love you, and we're so thankful for what you have done for us, who we are in Christ Jesus. You have not only united us to Christ, you have made us slaves to righteousness. And Father, you have given us all that is needed for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. God, help us. Help us, Lord, to find greater joy in you. Help us to pursue greater depths of intimacy with you. And Father, may you be so well pleased to take us, your people, and to make us holier and godlier and more Christ-like. Give us a zeal and a passion for the name of Jesus. And may it be contagious. May all the world look and see that there is greater joy that can be found in Jesus Christ. It is his precious name we pray. Amen.